0: This episode of the Nick Bob Podcast is brought to you by Pella Windows and Doors, you know, to talk about uh, conference expansion. You need energy efficiency. You know, you got to have it to deal with all this craziness. But you also need energy efficiency if you want the most out of your windows and doors. And if you take a look at Pella's website right now, they got five different types of windows or doors from Pella that won the Energy Star 2020 Most Energy Efficient Award. Big time stuff right there. For more information on how Pella can make your home more comfortable and energy efficient, check them out online, PellaOmaha.com. That's PellaOmaha.com. And the Nick Bob Podcast is brought to you by my good pals at Runza. Did you know that Runza has an app? They do. Like, go straight to the App Store right now and download it because you can order food on the app, have it ready to pick up, At the restaurant, you can earn points for rewards. In fact, when you download the app, you can get $5 off your first order in the app. It's arguably the best app of all time. So go download the Runza app, get Runza, get rewards, then get more Runza all on the app. Runza makes it all better. Okay, welcome back into the pod, everybody. And we got a good podcast on deck for you today. It's just me and you and about 16 pages of notes. I got some NBA draft stuff I want to dive into. Uh, I want to take a look at, at some of the Nebraska football offseason storylines. And then, of course, I got some conference expansion stuff I'll get into shortly. But a uh, reminder to make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Just click that subscribe button. That way you won't miss any of the pods when they drop. They automatically download to your phone. And that way you won't miss... The next Husker Classic Recaps, it's coming soon. Be on the lookout for it. Uh, It's 1993 Orange Bowl, Nebraska, Florida State. Just one of the most heartbreaking, crazy games you'll ever watch. It's Charlie Ward for Florida State, Heisman Trophy winner, battling sophomore, young Tommy Frazier. Lawrence Phillips makes his splash into the scene. Trev Alberts plays an incredible football game. And it all culminates in a wild, 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 Final two minutes of the game, just a crazy game, and honestly, one of the one of the most heartbreaking games in Husker history. But it kind of ended up kind of laying the foundation for for nineteen ninety four and nineteen ninety five back to back titles. Uh, so it's it's worth watching, and it's certainly worth listening to because uh, in terms of our, our Husker Classic Recap pod, I, I just is a really entertaining game to watch. It's a blast to kind of recap it with Bo. Uh, so get ready to listen to that soon. Um, it's it's coming in a few days, but let's get into today's pod. Uh, cause again, it's just me and you and three topics, baby. So here we go. Uh, by the way, I'm taping this. It's a uh, Thursday. It's Thursday, July 29th, about 10 30 in the morning. So I mean, with the way the news and world changes, you never know when things you know, become dated or, or whatever, but let's talk about the, uh, the big story in the sports world over the last week, and that's conference expansion. I mean, holy shit, this story has moved quick. Um, And, of course, talking about Texas and Oklahoma leaving the Big 12 and joining the SEC. It it went from a rumor to what feels like almost a done deal in just a few days. And it's a crazy story that has now gotten even crazier with the cease and desist letter that – Uh, Bob Bowlesby, the commissioner of the Big 12, sent to ESPN, alleging that that ESPN has tampered with Texas and Oklahoma to join the SEC because ESPN owns the SEC TV rights and the SEC network. And then also alleges that ESPN tampered with the American Athletic Conference to try to get them to poach some teams from the Big 12 so the conference would dissolve quicker, allowing Oklahoma and Texas to get out of paying the $70 million fee for leaving the conference. All this is just nuts. Like, it is just crazy. I mean ESPN getting their hands in in this kinds of stuff like wow. Now to be fair it's all just an allegation right now. We'll see if it's if if it's you know got some legitimacy to it but uh, at this point I've gotten to the point where like the you know college college sports it's like where the unbelievable is believable now. Like so there isn't really anything any story, any rumor that I would just completely dismiss, right? Like I it, I I kind of <laughs> going to I I'm I'm going to buy almost anything right now. Right? I, sh- I should say I'm not going to dismiss everything, right? But still, just just crazy. Um so here I mean I I really really hate all this stuff like I do. Let me just let me start saying that. I don't I'm I'm not a conference expansion guy, I'm not a conference realignment guy. I don't like it. Um you know and that's what, what's weird is conference expansion and some conference realignment has has I mean it's it's changed the trajectory of Creighton basketball, and and that I love. Like I think I think the newly formed Big East has been great and it's been incredible for Creighton, and but if you think about it, outside of the schools that clearly went up a level, i.e. Creighton to the Big East, even maybe like TCU to the Big Twelve. I think you could argue that all conference realignment has been not very good. Like, did it really help the conferences? Yeah, I mean, I guess it maybe helped them cash a bigger TV check, but did it actually help the conferences? Uh, Debatable. And I think you could make a case that it has hurt every specific team that has Moved up and or, or moved around in in conferences. In, in fact, look at this. I saw that Brett McMurphy tweeted this out. Here are the records for every Power Five conference football school who changed conferences. Okay, these are conference records in their new conference. So, A and M forty two and thirty one. That's the best winning percentage, by the way. These are in order of pit. 36 and 30 TCU 44 and 37 Utah 45 and 41 Nebraska 43 and 41 West Virginia 40 and 40 Louisville 29 and 29 Missouri 35 and 39 Syracuse 20 and 46 Maryland 16 and 41 Colorado 23 and 62 Rutgers 10 and 51 I mean wow I mean, like I said, other than the recruiting profile for Texas A&M that's allowed them maybe being in the SEC to recruit at a, at a higher level, I think you can make a case that every single school, from a football standpoint, that changed conferences is, is now probably they're in a worse spot in terms of on-the-field winning. And that's not just like my opinion. The number, I mean, I just gave you the numbers. Those are all 500 or worse teams. So I I want to start with that I I just don't outside of the schools that moved up you know Butler to the Big East Creighton to the Big East like I, I don't and that those are hoops I I just don't know what you can really say from a football standpoint who has just unequivocally been like man this has been great for them yeah so I'm I'm real I'm not a huge conference realignment conference expansion guy but what's tough is this round of realignment that is that is about to happen. It, I think it's about to be way more impactful to the sport than the, than the round of realignment we saw 10 years ago. I, I think Texas and Oklahoma joining the SEC is bad for college football. Because it feels like potentially now Oklahoma and Texas leaving the Big 12, joining the SEC could be the first domino for massive change that could legit ruin some conferences and ruin some programs. Because you start to kind of go, okay, what's the end game here? Is this the first step into having a few super conferences with, you know, 16 to 20 teams or so in it? Because that's what it kind of feels like this is now trending towards. Because it feels like it's, it's a game of musical chairs and everyone is trying to be in one of the super conferences when the music stops. That's what it feels like now. I mean, could this lead to a complete breakaway from the NCAA? And with this NIL stuff, the NCAA feels as weak as it's ever felt. Could this ultimately lead to a, a complete breaking away from the Group of Five teams? You know, and and I think you you better believe that if if things trend towards this and all the things that we think are coming down the pike actually come to fruition which i think they will i think this is the first domino to massive realignment you better believe there're going to be some power 5 teams that who might get left behind some teams that are in power conferences right now might end up when the musical chair when when this musical chairs game when the music stops they ain't got a chair and it's depending on what the in game is i worry about the ramifications to the sport as a whole and to the individual institutions as well like i guess just in the pursuit of a bigger paycheck and more power to me texas and oklahoma joining the sec could cripple other conferences and other athletic programs which crushes or greatly alters opportunities for thousands of players and coaches across college sports. And as we saw with the pandemic, there's an impact to local economies that are tied to these sports. So this is just, this is a big deal. This is a big, big deal. And I was thinking about, I've, I've just, I've kind of been almost in a state of being shocked, shell-shocked over the past week as this story has kind of progressed. You know, people always want to say sports are a reflection of life. And there are so many life lessons in sports, which I agree with. But, okay, well, let me ask you this Is everyone acting completely in their own self interest a good thing? Is everyone chasing the biggest payday, regardless of who gets hurt in that pursuit, a good thing? Is everyone just trying to gain as much power as they possibly can, regardless of who gets crushed in the wake of that, a good thing? I don't think it is. We don't want to see that in life. We certainly don't want to see that in sports. And, you know, the counter to to, to a lot of this stuff could be like, Nick, listen, man, it's not Oklahoma and Texas' job to prop up Kansas State and Iowa State. You know, it's not Oklahoma and Texas's job to keep the lights on for the Big Twelve. It's their job to do what's best for them. And I, I, guess I can understand that. I guess. And Nick, it can't. I mean, how how Bama and how Bama and East Carolina are actually like somehow inside the same sport is ridiculous. There, you have two totally different entities and budgets and all. This stuff. Uh, okay. I mean, I, I, like I'm not saying there are aren't, aren't valid points. Be, you gotta be careful about where you draw the line when you go down that path. Because again, depending on how all this shakes out, the consequences to this move could be devastating for some. It's why, it's, don't get it twisted. This is why Bob Bowlesby and the Big 12, they they are, they got their, their weapons drawn and they are ready to fight for this thing. They sent a cease and desist letter to ESPN. I mean, they know this, I mean, it is it is survival now. So I don't like it, man. I, I, I just, I really don't like it. And I really worry about the next dominoes to fall and how all this shakes out. Again, to me, the, the, it is musical chairs and the music started. That's what it feels like. Because the other thing, too, is some people say, well, the music isn't going to start for a couple years, Nick, and you're, this analogy of musical chairs. Eh, I don't know about that, bro. I think the music started. I think all this is going to happen way sooner than you think. You, you're telling me, I don't see how Texas and Oklahoma play in the Big 12 for another four years. Like, really, really say that out loud and think about what that looks like. I mean, do you remember Nebraska's one season in the Big 12 after it was announced they were leaving for the Big 10? Remember the 2010 season? Remember how every week there was drama. It felt like the refs were screwing Nebraska. Remember 13 penalties at Texas A&M, all that stuff. Like, Remember all that? Now try to do that four years in a row with Texas and Oklahoma. I just don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't see it happening. I think, I think this stuff's going to move up way quicker and, and all this stuff's going to unfold a little bit faster than you think. So the question is, what happens? Like, what does all what does all that ultimately shake out to look like? Who knows, man. Even though I don't think this would happen, I was thinking about this. The Big Ten has to make sure that it does all it can to make sure Ohio State stays right where it's at, like. because now, like, these big brands are even more powerful. The Big Ten has to make sure Ohio State is happy and content right where they are. Because a lot of this stuff, guys, can come back to recruiting. Because think about this. If the SEC truly becomes the end-all, be-all for college football, which they already, in some eyes, in some people's minds, That already is the case. But if they're already kind of the, they become the end-all be-all for college football, and they got Texas and Oklahoma, along with Georgia, Florida, LSU, Alabama, and Ohio State starts to see their recruiting get impacted because of that, that super conference, right? And because every top recruit wants to play in that league, that's code red. That's code red. So, uh, so if you're if you're Kevin Warren in the Big Ten, you, you t- there's a delicate balance here. You got to make sure Ohio State's happy. And I know people may not like that. Oh, I shouldn't get preferential treatment? Well, we're in a different world, bro. Like, it's survival. And while you, if you're Kevin Warren in the Big Ten, I don't think you want to just start taking teams for the sake of taking teams. But I also don't know if you. I don't know if you can afford to just stand pat and 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 sit on the sidelines right now. Again, I don't know. I'm just. I'm in my podcast studio in my basement, just throwing stuff out there. Like you got to take teams that that make sense and are beneficial for you. Obviously. But dependent on what happens with the Big Twelve teams and how fast this Texas, Texas and Oklahoma thing happens to the SEC, the Big Ten might have, to, might have no choice but to start making some calls. And of course, I'd love to see Kansas in the Big Ten. Nothing would make me happier. But the reality is football's driving the bus on all these decisions, and Kansas football just doesn't move the needle. So that feels like that could be a long shot. Same could be said for teams like Iowa State and Kansas State. Right? There's just not a lot of big brands in the remaining teams in the Big 12. Notre Dame is always the coveted one when it comes to these these conferences and wanting to acquire big brands. But if they go anywhere, it feels like they're going to go to the ACC. I think. Who the hell knows? So the answer could be looking out west if you're the Big 10. Could we see a scenario where the Pac-12 – goes to the Big Ten, you know, part of the Pac-12 goes to the Big Ten and maybe part of the Pac-12 merges with the Big 12? I don't know. I mean, this is where the Pac-12 and the Big Ten have had this relationship for a while. I don't know if they want to start, you know, the Big Ten wants to start plucking teams out of there. But again, it's survival. It's survival. But if, if the Big Ten were forced to start making some calls and trying to make some moves. If I were the Big Ten and I had to look out west, I'd try to land these four schools. USC, UCLA, Stanford, and Oregon. Those would be my, my top four picks. The big one being USC. If I'm Kevin Warren and I got no choice but to get off the sidelines and get in the game and, and start the survival game, Those would be my top four picks. USC, UCLA, Stanford, and Oregon. USC being the huge college football brand. Now you're kind of the coast-to-coast conference from Penn State to USC. UCLA you're obviously continuing to get another Los Angeles market-based team as well as a great basketball school. Stanford is a good athletic program and you're getting one of the most one of the most prestigious academic institutions in the country. And then I think Oregon is a brand that is only going to continue to grow with Nike and Phil Knight back in it and with the NIL thing becoming a reality in college sports. I think Oregon is poised to only grow. Those would be my four picks. If I had to. Again, it feels like, I've never seen the movies, but I've seen the previews. If you, you've seen those, the preview for the movies, The Purge? Like, that's what college sports feels like now. It's the it's the fucking purge. Everybody is just killing everybody. You're trying to survive. When The Purge ends, you're trying to make sure you're alive. Right? And so, as much as the Big Ten and the Pac-12 don't want don't to get, you know, start entering into The Purge, like, I don't know, man. At this point, it's survival. So that if I were the Big Ten, that's what I would maybe consider. Again, if I were around it, my first choice would be Kansas because I, <laughs> I went KU Hoops in the Big Ten. But, but I mean, listen, USC, UCLA, Stanford, Oregon, those are the four biggest Pac-12 brands, in my opinion, to me. And USC being a huge football brand, those would be the four. And then maybe, you know, Big 12 schools form another league with, with the Pac-12 schools. Who knows? Like, the remaining Big 12 schools try and team up with the remaining Pac-12 schools. I'm just throwing stuff out here. Who, who the hell knows? I hate even talking about this. I do. Because I like the Pac-12. I like the Big 10. I like the Big 12. Like, I love conferences. I love the rivalries. I love the geographical footprints. I love the identities of each league. Right? Uh, the Pac-12's soft. The Big 10 is slow. The Big 12 plays no defense. I love all that stuff. Like, I love it. I love the rivalries. I love all that shit. And, and it just feels like we're all of a sudden now going to be morphing into some weird college football world that I don't think is very appealing. And that's just it. I, and again, maybe because we're not in SEC country, but I haven't really heard one person say they like this Texas and Oklahoma to the SEC thing. Have you? Like who who actually likes this? Who actually is like, this is this is exactly this is great. This is exactly what the sport needs. This is perfect. I love this. Ah, oh, yeah, Big Twelve just going away. This is great. Like I, I don't I don't have those conversations. I don't even see them on Twitter. And you see like every conversation on Twitter. College football is the second most popular sport in the country behind the NFL. People got to say that out loud. College football is the second most popular sport in our country. But in my opinion, we've seen with the college football playoff ratings decline, the sport becoming increasingly Southern dominant, that this is only going to – Texas and Oklahoma going to the SEC is only going to further that. Like, you keep doing stuff like this, you're going to chip away at its popularity because the sport – that we all fell in love with will begin to look like a distant memory if this realignment train keeps on rolling like this. I mean, I- imagine a sport with like a college football with like three super conferences. And, and the group of five isn't even really involved. There is no Boise State. Like, uh, imagine what that looks like. Oh, and by the way, all this stuff could be be coinciding is coinciding with NIL rights that are gonna create a whole litany of other potential interesting subplots to college football and and it's it's the way it operates, right? You've already seen there's a story out of that that one of the top quarterback recruits could skip his senior year of football, commit to Ohio State, and sign like a seven figure NIL deal. Like <sighs> people transferring, I mean, it's just, again, I don't want to be one, of, this is what, this is the thing as I say this, I don't want to be that guy that lives life in the rearview mirror, and it was, be, back in my day, it was better, I don't want to be that guy. You don't want to be one of those people that, that freezes in an era and refuses to adapt and overcome and and all that. Like, I don't want to be that guy. But, but sometimes things were better like like sometimes how something was currently construct uh, was constructed was the best way to have it constructed and that's how I feel like a lot of this college college football and college landscape stuff is it just I don't know I, I think there's a chance that it this all this could potentially create an unrecognizable product so I'm nervous man I just hope somehow this all shakes out to not be as catastrophic as it appears it could be and we'll see. Oh, and by the way, yes, all this terrifies me for college fa- for college basketball. Like, I don't even know. Like, a part of me won't even, like, let my brain go there. Because, again, co- football is driving the bus on all this. All these decisions are made with football in mind and football only. And I really worry about what college basketball looks like when all the dust settles. Now... The reality is, as long as you can put on an NCAA tournament, as long as there's, there's, gonna, there's a March Madness, the sport of college basketball can survive and thrive. But what does that look like if you just have a few super conferences? Like, what does that, what is, what is the future for college basketball look like? What does the tournament look like? Because you kind of need all those low and mid-majors for the tournament to be the tournament. So, yeah, I'm really worried about all this stuff for for college basketball. I'm really worried about it. So we'll see. We'll see how it ends up, how all this stuff shakes out. The Dick Bob Podcast is brought to you by Pella Windows and Doors. And I want to talk to you guys about energy efficiency. And if you go onto Pella's website right now, you look at it. And how about this? One, two, three, four, five different types of windows or doors. for window and doors to perform at their best. And you know the Pella experts are excellent at that. Bottom line, energy efficiency matters in making your home more comfortable, and Pella windows and doors are at the top of the line when it comes to energy efficiency. Check them out online, PellaOmaha.com. That's PellaOmaha.com. Okay, so with uh, the next topic here I want to dive into, fall camp is about to get underway for Nebraska, and it's certainly been... (laughs) It's been an interesting, eventful offseason for Husker football. And if you think about it, from the end of of the Rutgers game on December 19th till now, there's been no shortage of storylines and drama and crazy things unfold, right? Like, a ton of stuff has happened. I wrote down the top 10 offseason storylines for Nebraska, and I'm afraid I missed a few. And if I missed a few, feel free to email me or you know, leave a comment in the Facebook or Twitter section. But I wrote down the top 10 offseason storylines for Nebraska. And I kind of did it in order of, like, biggest story to, you know, the not-so-big stories. But 10. Number one, I put Bill Moose retiring. This has to be the biggest one to me. Like, nobody thought Bill Moose was going to suddenly retire at the end of June. And, and clearly, this was a buyout of some kind. Something happened or something clicked for Nebraska and its decision makers to do this, to made them, make them want to turn the page on Bill Moose ASAP. Now, what that something is, who knows? But the man who hired Scott Frost, the athletic director who had one more year on his contract and told everyone his intentions were to finish the contract, suddenly steps away at the end of June. Big, weird story. And judging the Bill Moose tenure is so tough to do. Because what's hard is ultimately you're judged as an athletic director on who you hire and how those coaches do. And Bill Moose on paper made three great hires. Scott Frost, Fred Hoiberg, Will Bolt. Now, Will Bolt has performed. The other two haven't so far. But still, don't get it twisted. Scott Frost and Fred Hoiberg were A-plus hires at the time. So how do you judge it? Like, it's hard. Because it, for me, and I don't want to necessarily, you know, kick Bill Moose out the door, I actually think those two hires, Hoiberg and Frost, were more put on a platter for Moose than you think. Like, I think Matt Davison did most of the heavy lifting for the Frost hire. And then I was actually kind of shocked at when you when you, when you, you actually looked at it and listened to the introductory press conference and studied it more, how many family ties Fred Hoiberg had at Nebraska. Like... I think Moose did more work for the Hoiberg hire than Frost. But still, I think I Hoiberg think had way more connections to Nebraska basketball and the state of Nebraska and the city of Lincoln than you realize. And the Midwest in this sort of footprint. Now, you got to tip your cap in some level. That, you know, you ultimately got Fred Hoiberg to say yes and he signed a dotted line, right? But still, there were some ties. You had an in. And so you you then you see the reports that after the fact that Bill Moose wasn't around a ton, he wasn't in the office a ton, he wasn't visible at sporting events outside of football. you hear Scott Frost at Big Ten Media Day say that he had to do way more non-football stuff than than he needed or wanted to do over the last three years, which make you you know kind of raise your eyebrows at moose. But the reality is he wasn't here for very long, only lasted three years. It's a weird tenure to judge on a variety of levels. But again, the 80s, Bill Moose suddenly retires. Enormous news. Number two, then it has to be Trev Alberts being hired. Like, you got to piggyback off that. I think the second biggest storyline of the offseason for Nebraska has to be then who Nebraska hired as the athletic director, and it's Trev Alberts, another Husker legend who comes with some baggage because of his time at UNO and him having to make some tough decisions in terms of cutting two programs. And I actually think what... What he did with UNO Athletics is impressive. Transitioning them to Division I, getting those facilities built. I you know, I think cutting those two sports, sometimes you got to make tough decisions. Um, but a Husker legend back at Nebraska to run the athletic department in a critical time is huge news. And I've said this a few times to a few different people on a few different podcasts. I like the hire, and the more I think about it, the more I like it. Because it's interesting, I think the... I think the state of the football program made the athletic director job a tricky one for some people and, quite frankly, probably scared some candidates off. And that's what I think. I think Trev Alberts is uniquely equipped on a variety of levels. He's, he's already as connected in the state, being an athletic director at UNO. He, he knows the, the big boosters and the big people you got to know in this state. He has an established relationship with them. He also understands Nebraska being a player and, 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 and a great one at the university. Understands the, you know, the good and the bad of the program, the weaknesses and the strengths. But then I think he's uniquely equipped because of all that to handle Frost and the football situation, depending on how all this stuff plays out, which is huge. I think he, he's going to be good for Nebraska. He's going to be good for Frost, and his hire is huge news. Third biggest offseason season storyline. Nebraska trying to get out of the Oklahoma game. It's still hard for me to even say that out loud and hard for me to even process. It was a story that hit, I believe, in April from Brett McMurphy that Nebraska was allegedly trying to get out of the game at Oklahoma in September this upcoming season, a game that had been scheduled for over a decade that was going to be a celebration of the 50th anniversary of the game of the century, which is the biggest game in Nebraska football history and one of the biggest games in college football history. There's bad publicity, and then there's this. Any way you slice it, it's just an awful look on so many levels. It's a bad look for what I just laid out, a slap in the face to the celebration of the game in the century and renewing an old rivalry, and a bad look in that it makes Nebraska look like they're scared to play that game because they might get their teeth kicked in because Oklahoma's a top-five team. I mean, it shows a lack of confidence from Nebraska. I mean, the fans are excited for that game. The players themselves are excited for that game. It's one of the biggest non-conference games in a long, long time, and the athletic department or a few people in there wanted out of it. Ugh. Ugh. That's really bad. And it's also a window into the dysfunction of the athletic department. Like, how trying to get out of the Oklahoma game even got suggested is beyond me, and then how it actually got some legs behind it is mind blowing. And then how it allegedly was done without everyone being on the same page is is like unfathomable. Nebraska got crushed for this nationally and locally, locally and deservedly so. Really, really, really bad look for Nebraska on this one. And I think this story soured the fan base more than people even realize. Like, I think this, that Nebraska trying to get out of the Oklahoma game really, really left a bad taste in a lot of fans' mouth. So, I mean, big, big story. Fourth biggest story. Has to be Wondell Robinson and Luke McCaffrey transferring. You know, I mean, just big news. Created a lot of headlines, a lot of talk, a lot of drama. And I, you know, what's hard is I see both sides of this discussion. I really do. I can't be disingenuous and turn on this microphone and act like these guys leaving isn't a big deal. It is a big deal. Wondell Robinson, arguably the best player on the team, was probably the face of the program. Luke McCaffrey, huge last name in the football world. McCaffrey name, Ed McCaffrey, Christian McCaffrey. He was the starting quarterback for a bit last season. And Frost at one point, even though I think we maybe made too much of this, he did call him the future of the program. So when you're losing players like that, it's a bad look. It's a bad look. But at the same time, I don't, I don't think Luke McCaffrey is was ever going to be the answer at quarterback, and that's the position he wants to play. He just, to me, what he's not a good enough passer and isn't polished enough. And with, with Wandell Robinson, really good player, but the reality is if he's your best player, you're probably not winning a ton. You're probably not. I think losing Wandale Robinson is a bigger deal than, than losing Luke McCaffrey, but at the same time, even with his departure, I feel better about the wide receiver position as a whole today than I did last season. So it's kind of a weird deal. But nevertheless, Wandale Robinson and Luke McCaffrey leaving was a big, big story. It was a big, big story. Fifth biggest story. All the defensive players coming back. Because you have to kind of think about the flip side of, of Luke and Wandale leaving is that all the top defensive players decided to come back for another year, which is, is an enormous story. Because I think it speaks to the development on that side of the ball, and now the defense has a chance to be pretty legit. Imagine how bleak this season would feel if all the guys, you know, you have five super seniors decide to come back, and then the best player on the team, Cam Taylor Britt, decides to come back. Like, imagine if all those guys left. Oh mama, that be re- it'd be real concerning. People are already a little concerned about this season. But nine starters total are back. You get a bunch of dudes that that obviously the one free transfer they could have they they could have you know in Cam Taylor Britt's situation maybe could have gone to the NFL. But for that group, for all those guys to say they want to come back, I think that's huge. One of the feel-good stories of the offseason. I think that that defense took a step in the right direction last year. Now they're an experienced, older veteran group. It's a big story. It's a big, big story. Sixth biggest storyline of the offseason. Scott Frost and his coaching staff staff decisions. Because people wondered after the season, okay, what's Frost going to do? 12 and 23 years. Is he going to chop some heads? Is he going to make some moves? And people wondered, most notably, if Nebraska would make a move to hire a full-time special teams coach. And Frost ended up not doing any of that. Put Mike Dawson and pseudo in charge of it, but it'll kind of be a collaborative effort once again. And in terms of the special teams, and that move was met with some criticism by some, calling it lip service and addressing the special teams woes. I see that both ways. Like, I think sometimes people got to understand in order to hire a special teams coach, you got to get rid of a coach. So it's not that simple. And if you're really... Examine the coaching staff. Like, what coach was really going to be on the chopping block? Ryan Held? No, he's one of your top recruiters. Matt Lubick, you just brought him on. Greg Austin, Frost feels good about him. You just brought Dawson back. You got Tony Tuioti doing a pretty good job with that D line. I think Barrett Rude's been an awesome coach at the linebacker spot. Travis Fisher's been outstanding. Like, who? Who? It's. I'm not sure who you find to say that guy's out of here. So I get why Frost arrived at this decision. Now, they did part with their special teams analyst, but who knows how involved he really was. I mean, he couldn't be on the field during practice, but I do get why this is a story, right? Special teams has been atrocious for three straight years, and you could point to that phase as one of the biggest things that's held Nebraska back in their pursuit of, you know, taking incremental steps of getting to a bowl game and winning seven, eight, nine games. Nebraska ranked almost dead last in field position position starting field position last year, which is a great special teams indicator. It has to get better. And I think fans were interested to see how that was going to get addressed. And We'll see how ultimately that looks this fall. And then there was the other little nugget after the season that Scott Frost had given up some play calling duties to Matt Lubick. And it sounds like that will potentially continue this season, which is, I mean, I think some people forget about that. That's a big story, right? Like, I mean, That was kind of Frost's thing when he arrived at Nebraska. He was known as this play-calling guru. He was the offensive coordinator at Oregon when they were lighting the world on fire. Goes to Central Florida. He's dialing up plays. They're averaging, you know, 45 points per game or whatever it was. They're lighting everyone on fire. Everybody thought, Frost, play-caller, this is what he's best at. Like, if someone would have said, like, what's the number one attribute you would think about Scott Frost, the coach, when he was hired, I'm like, excellent play-caller. And now he's potentially relinquishing some of those play calling duties. That's an interesting big story. But I think the need to become more more of a CEO overseer of all phases and aspects probably is the catalyst behind this move. But nevertheless, it's a big story. It's a big, big story. Seventh biggest storyline. I still think it's skipping the bowl game. And you could say that was part of the season, but I I think it it spilled into the offseason with some of the spring game stuff or spring, uh, spring football media sessions. But Nebraska put it to a team vote at the end of the year, and the team decided to not play in a bowl game. And that decision, that decision was met with some criticism by fans and media members and even the players. I, for one, raising my hand right now, I didn't like the decision. And, you know, listen, there were a handful of players, most notably on the defensive side of the ball, that wanted to play, voted to do so, but got outvoted and are still not very happy about it. You, you saw some of the defensive backs get quoted at the start of spring ball that they still don't feel happy about that situation. I didn't like putting it to a vote. I thought that was a a bad decision by Frost. Um, I thought that move allowed for Frost to kind of be off the hook in the decision. Like, he could just point at the players and say, hey, don't look at me. They It was their decision. They voted on it. They didn't want to play. Yeah, Like, sometimes when you're in charge, you got to step up and make the decision. Now, I will say... This was very nuanced. It was at the end of the, you know, you had had the pandemic season. They'd been there for a long time. Like, so you have the pandemic COVID thing part of it where people were just mentally, emotionally, physically exhausted. And then it also complicates things that Adrian Martinez was hurt and banged up. And I don't even know if he would have been able to play in a bowl game. So he likely voted to not play. And when your starting quarterback doesn't play like that makes it hard. But still is a big story. Because I've said I think the biggest thing this program and team needs is games and opportunities to gain confidence. And to turn out into turn down a bowl, I just I thought it was a bad move. That was a bad move. And it was met with some criticism. And again, some defensive players at the start of spring ball talked about how they were still upset about upset by it, which isn't good. So that was a big story. Next biggest story. To me, just the wide receiver improvement and intrigue. I think a big storyline over the offseason is the you know on-paper improvement of that wide receiver spot, which has been in some ways kind of a microcosm of the program's issues since Frost has arrived here. The inability to find solid, productive wide receivers has been disappointing, to say the least. And after this season and Wondell Robinson's departure, it looked like that spot was on life support. But all of a sudden now, you, you look up and it's you got the addition of Samari Torre, the FCS All American from Montana, combined with a good spring from Oliver Martin and Omar Manning, who was on a milk carton all last year. Xavier Betts had, you know, he's showed flashes last year and certainly looks the part, which is huge for this offense. And I think was a big story. Now, to be fair, the proof will be in the pudding. We'll see how they produce in the fall. But the fact that Nebraska is seemingly improved in that in that position is huge. It is huge. The next biggest storyline to me is uh, was Bill Moose's eight to nine win comment where Bill Moose, Bill Moose told the media this spring when asked about expectations next year that he thought eight to nine wins were you know was a reasonable expectation for Frost in year four. And what's, what's weird is on the surface, the coach at Nebraska in year four being expected to win eight or nine games shouldn't be a crazy thought. but when you put it into perspective of what the last few years have looked like it was it was interesting to hear nebraska is 12 and 20 under scott frost they haven't been to a bowl game haven't had a winning season since 2016 five of the last six years nebraska has had a losing season to to just to then just say yeah 8 to 9 wins that's yeah, that's a reasonable expectation can be met with a whoa from certain people Certainly created a lot of discussion. And it was interesting to kind of juxtapose. Remember in 2019, when Nebraska was picked to win the West, right? They were the preseason media darling, year two of Frost. When Bill Moose told everybody, hey, just got to get to a bowl game. Everybody's like, whoa, what? Why are you Debbie Downer? So, like, when you juxtapose those two dueling narratives, right? Like, high expectations from the outside looking in, Moose downplays it. Now this year, low expectations from the outside looking in. Moose says, no, eight to nine wins. Certainly created a lot of discussion. Certainly created a lot of discussion. The Nick Bob podcast is brought to you by my good friends at Runza. Everybody that knows my athletic background, you know, I was a quarterback in high school, but you know, I believe in establishing the run game. And even more than that, I believe in establishing the Runza game. That's an original Runza cheeseburger. Some onion rings, double-dipped in a homemade batter, a little bit of a pop to top it off. You know, in football, you establish a run. But at lunch, you establish the Runza. It's just that simple. So get out to Runza today and establish the Runza game, or check out the delicious salads. you got the chicken bacon ranch salad, sweet berry chicken salad, and my personal favorite, the Southwest chicken salad. you got to get out to Runza, establish a Runza game, or get a salad, either way, you are going to leave satisfied. Runza makes it all better. And then the last, you know, 10th biggest storyline of this offseason for Nebraska. The fact that Nebraska didn't go out and get another quarterback. Because that was, that was a big question when Luke McCaffrey left, was, hey, you know, is Nebraska going to go into the transfer portal and get another quarterback this offseason to have it on its roster? And ultimately, that decision was no. And I like that decision. I said all along, I'm not sure who you were actually going to find that checked all the boxes of what you wanted, right? Like, need a really talented guy that can can potentially step in and, you know, arrive, be totally comfortable being the backup with Martinez being here for at least another year, maybe two. Uh, He also has other guys he's got to beat out. Like, I don't know who you really were going to find. And the reality is, if you were going to go get another quarterback, you were probably going to be pushing Logan Smothers out the door right like not not a great thing but on the flip side of that to argue for a quarterback and getting one is listen martinez has not been great in terms of wins and losses and some of his performances right he's also been banged up his whole career he's missed games every season and now he's the only quarterback on your roster with any experience and some people would go Man, you got a redshirt freshman in Smothers and Heinrich Harburg behind him? That's a little concerning. And I get that. But for me, I'm like, some people thought Nebraska should have gone into the portal and got a quarterback, but I felt like at some point Nebraska's got to commit and trust their evaluation and, and the guys they got in that room, right? Like either you believe in your ability to evaluate quarterbacks and then groom them and develop them, or you're just going to keep on trying to bring in somebody else. So I thought they did the right thing. And Stan and Pat not bringing in someone else. Some didn't. Certainly was an interesting storyline to track. So there you go. Top 10 off-season storylines for uh, for Nebraska football was – an. Uh, if you really think about it, I mean, that was all – that's all over the course of, you know, December 19th to August 1st here. July 29th is when I'm taping this. That's a lot of stuff. That's a lot of stuff. All right, last thing to dive into um, – Again, taping this on Thursday, July 29th, so it's, the, it's NBA draft day. Draft is tonight. It, it's, it's a day that I like. I mean, I'm going to be glued to the TV. I'm going to be watching it all, and I consume all the pre-coverage to it and all that stuff. But at the same time, it's become such an odd day because the NBA draft is just so much different than the NFL draft. When you The NFL draft, you have these juniors and seniors – where you have three to four years of tape on them and you know these guys really, really well. Not only who they are, but what they can do. You know their names, you know their games. The NBA draft isn't isn't quite like that. It's almost become the potential draft. It's the what someone could possibly be in the future draft. You Like, you get to see one, maybe two years of tape and these guys are often 19 years old, and to me, that just makes it hard to be really good at projecting. Like I think, pre, I think draft projecting is hard for the NBA. And then the other thing is, I think it gets hard for the casual average fan to get really into watching and consuming the draft because I'd imagine, I'd imagine a lot of casual fans could turn on the draft and say, who, "Who's that guy who just got picked?" The Wizards took who? Who did the Rockets pick? Who is that? Did he play in college? He didn't. Where was he at? The G G League? What? Who's that guy? Like, you're going to get a lot of that. Not to mention the foreign players as well. So it's just, it's so interesting to contrast the NFL and NBA draft in that regard. And it's also so interesting how... The longer guys stay in college, the more we pick their games apart, and the more they're labeled as old, and that can be a deterrent in drafting them in the first round. Like, someone like Davion Mitchell, a guy I love, is almost too old for some people in the first round. He spent four years in college. He's 22 years old. For some people, like, ah, it's, it's too old. Or at the very least, he's labeled old for being a rookie or a draft pick, which is also fascinating to me. It's also fascinating to me how much just the game has changed, which, you know, in turn then alters how we evaluate talent and project it at the NBA level, right? Like, the game's completely changed. I mean, hell, drafting a a center, which is a risky move nowadays, like, you almost kind of don't care about their ability to to score in post-up situations with their basket to the basket. Like, you don't really care about that. It's about defending the rim, being good in pick and rolls, finishing, and then defensively, can you survive defending and hedging ball screens? Like, can you potentially offensively punish a switch? That's more what you're looking for as a five-man rather than, like, does he got a good up and under? (laughs) You You just don't really care about that anymore. I mean, anymore now, being able to shoot is almost non-negotiable. Like, if you can't shoot, I have a hard time getting into you. Like, if I were a, if I were a team, like, man, if you, if you, you got to be excellent in a ton of other areas to play and survive on the floor as a non-shooter in the NBA. You look at guys like Ben Simmons and all that stuff, like, great player, but, like, when shit got real in the playoffs, like, homeboy can't shoot and it makes it hard. But think about how good he has to be in every other area. 6'10", ball handling, unbelievable defensive player. Like, if you can't shoot, you better be Draymond Green, being able to guard one through five, pass, tough, smart. I mean, so if you can't shoot, it's what always concerns me. It's always funny to me tonight, like, I'll watch the draft, and if, like, if the chief concern for any player is, like, bad shooter, to me, that is not, like, he's almost undraftable for me. Unless they are, like, transcendently good in other areas. You know, defensively, people covet the ability to defend multiple positions. Like, basically, what you're looking for now is guys that are 6'5 to 6'8 that can defend – that – you know, are are switchable, versatile defenders. They can they they can defend long 6'8, 6'9, 6'10 guys. They could guard a 6'3, 6'2 guard. Like, can you defensive versatility? We used to think of versatility as an offensive term. It's now a defensive term, too. Excellent defensive versatility, meaning he can guard a point guard, he can guard a forward. Those guys are so valuable. Because the more you can switch defensively and survive the harder it is to run sets and the more simplified ball screen defense becomes you just switch it but when you're having to drop coverage, hedge, you know, you're trying to ice ball screens like th- then the other three guys got to really be, you know, on a string, talking, communicating, rotating. If you just switch that stuff, you make teams become one-on-one oriented which obviously is not how certain teams want to play. So it's it's just amazing how much the game has changed on a variety of levels. But with the NBA draft, like I said, I find it really, really challenging to get, to get a great feel for a lot of these guys since the sample size is so small. I I think it's hard. Because I feel like I watch as much college basketball as anybody, and there's certain guys that get named as, like, this guy's potential top 10 pick. I'm like, yeah, I mean, I'd love to see one more year, like, of him in the SEC before I I, I really could could call it, right? I like Moses Moody. I li- You know, like, lots of lot light. Like. like, I'd like to see one more year. I like Sharif Cooper. I'd like to see one more year. But, you know, if a guy fits a profile, has the right measurables, shows potential – has the high ceiling, you know, all the buzzwords. It doesn't matter if they only got one year of college basketball and if they weren't wildly productive and they got some big holes in their game. If he, you know, he's becomes intriguing to the NBA. In some ways, it's what got Justin Patton drafted, right? Like, he he fit a lot of the buzzwords and the measurables and the potential and the high ceiling and people are like, oh, yeah, take a flyer on him. So it's just an interesting... it's an interesting night on a variety of levels. Talk about the NBA draft. I mean, again, I love to watch it. I love to consume it. I think it's awesome. But when you juxtapose it with the NFL draft, it's just totally different on a variety of levels. With all that said, let me give you, I'll I'll give you a little something. I'm going to give you my five favorite players in the draft. I'll start with what I believe are the three best players in the draft, and then I'll give you two other guys that that I just really, really like. I'm not saying these two other guys are like, you know, the, the fourth and fifth best player in the draft, but I th- there are two other guys I really, really like. The best player in the draft is Cade Cunningham, period. No doubt about it, out of Oklahoma State. I, th- I think Cade Cunningham is going to be a really, really, really good player in the NBA. Like a franchise cornerstone, multiple all-star, difference-making, impact-winning kind of a dude. He's got great size at six foot eight as a ball handler. His basketball feel and IQ is off the charts. He just knows how to play. He know not only, not only, and this is big. This is what I love. And like, I think all great players have this, like truly great players. When someone says, oh, he knows how to play the game. That's not just like reading ball screens and help side defense and all that stuff, but reading the game too. Like, he, he, he knows when to attack, how to control tempo, how to control pace, how to get his teammates involved, the importance of getting his teammates involved. Like, he lets the game come to him without being passive. He's not too, you know, sh- out there hunting shots. Like, he's, he balances aggression with patience. Like, he's got, he's got all that stuff. He's got all of it. I love his demeanor. He was great late in games. There was not a lot of shooting on the floor at Oklahoma State, so the floor's a little plugged for him, but he still found a way to carry that team. Like, I just – he's great in ball screens, which is non-negotiable now if you want to be a franchise player. I just – Cade Cunningham, best player in the draft. I like the kid a lot. He reminds me a little of Grant Hill. I, for a while, I was kind of on the Luka comparison train, but, I mean, he's he's kind of methodical like Luka. Like, if you watch him play, he kind of, like – He's he's going at his speed, you know. Like he's got a he's got good control, which you know that's kind of how Luca plays. But he's got that Grant Hill smoothness to him. I think he's a really good player, man. I think he's the best player in the draft. Second best, second best player in the draft to me is Jalen Suggs, because for whatever reason, I don't know. And this can kind of happen. Like it feels like in the mock draft worlds and in the draft world, like Suggs isn't getting the love that you would have uh, would have thought he would be getting. After I mean, he was after the NCAA tournament, in the Final Four. He was the man, and it feels like it's kind of cooled on him a little bit. Even though I mean, to be fair, you find I mean, find me a mock draft that doesn't have him in the top four or five, right? Like if you if if Jalen Suggs is not in your top five mock draft, you need to find a different mock draft. Okay. So I, he was the man during the college basketball season, and I still think he is. I mean, to me, he's the second best player in the draft. He's a winner. He's tough as shit. You watch Gonzaga you watched them throughout the year, when shit got real and they ever got pushed, it was Jalen Suggs who took over. It was Jalen Suggs who took over. In the West Coast Conference Tournament Championship game against BYU, when it got real, and they were down. They were down almost double figures, if I'm not mistaken, like halfway through the second half. Dude just took the game over. Just took it over. Just fucking made every play. Made every play. He's got great upside as a defender. I and mean, we remember the play in the in the final four. Remember, the he comes off his man, the block at the rim, throws the length of the floor pass to Timmy, I think it was, dunk. Like, he's just, dude is a stud, man. He's a really good athlete. He shot it better than I think some people thought he would this year. Um, now, I think, I don't know if he's ever going to be an elite shooter, but I think he, he's a good enough shooter. But I just think the guy is a dynamite. Run your team point guard in the league for a long time. I like Jalen Suggs a lot. Third best player in drafts Evan is Evan Mobley to me out of USC. Um, like I said regarding five men earlier, and kind of like the evaluation has changed, and Mobley fits the new bill nicely. He's elite in pick and rolls both ways. Defensively, he can handle them in a in a multitude of ways. He can hedge. He can play drop coverage. He can even switch some you know offensively then he's got really good hands. He can catch lobs and finish at the rim. He's got good touch and feel around the hoop. He he's he's got a, he's another guy that for a for a guy his size, 7-footer, he's got good feel for the game and he's got good touch. You know, there's some big guys that just like when they're in the in the paint, they just they're they're in a they they don't have a great sense of where they're at, where the def- defenders at, where the hoops at, where the rims at. Like he's got that his shot blocking's really, really good. Again, he can defend the rim. That's what you get. You draft him, you're getting a rim protector, potentially elite five man defender who can, who's a, a pressure on the rim on lobs. He's got good feel and touch. I think he's got good upside defensively and offensively. Like I just, he's a little thin right now. That's the only that he's a little thin. He's got to eat. He's got to get the runs app and get his runs a game right. But he's got to put on some weight. But I I like Evan Mobley. To me, those are the three best players in the draft: Cade Cunningham, Jalen Suggs, Evan Mobley. The other two guys I really really like that I think will be instant impact productive pros. Like I think these two guys could be like potential like all rookie team type dudes. And that's the thing: some people, you know, if you want an instant impact rookie, like these two guys are, are would be high on the list of dudes that I would pick. Those two guys are Damian Mitchell and Chris Duarte. I think I think both these guys could be or should be lottery picks, but I think their age will scare off some teams, which is kind of just bizarre to me. Chris Duarte's twenty three years old. Hell, he might even be twenty four by the time that the the draft rolled around. Damian Mitchell's twenty two. That's old for a lot of these the, the way these teams and franchises are evaluating the NBA, NBA draft. But I like both these guys a lot. You saw it in the tournament with Davion Mitchell. He's got a gear that nobody really else had in college basketball. Like, he's just a big-time, two-way, junkyard dog, straight-up punk you on defense type of dude. Like, he won. in it, when, If you watch them in the NSA tournament, Villanova kind of had Baylor reeling a little bit. And Davion Mitchell just took the game over. Like, he, Davion Mitchell won the Baylor the, the Villanova game in the tournament with his defense and his effort. His speed and athleticism is special. He's not necessarily an above-the-rim athlete, but, man, is he quick-twitched and quick. He really improved as a shooter this past year, which to me kind of seals him as an instant impact pro. I just, I don't know, I, I think sometimes, don't not think yourself with Mitchell, he's a stud. I think we sometimes devalue winning and your competitive spirit. We tend to dismiss those things. Like, that's why I never really, uh, I never really got the Markel Foltz stuff. His team was fucking horrible at Washington. When people are like, hey, he's the number one pick, I'm like, are you kidding me? You can't be the number one pick and be like one of the worst, arguably the worst power five team in the, in the country. Come on. But, like, Davion Mitchell, great competitive spirit, and his team won the national championship. And I know Jared Butler got a lot of the uh, the headlines, but, like, Davion Mitchell was their best player. So I, I think he's, he's one of those guys who's going to come in. He's going to help you win. He's going to help you win games. He's going to compete every night. He's going to play hard. He's going to be great on the ball defensively. He's going to be able to get in the lane, make plays. He rose his three point percentage to about 44 last year, which is impressive. I, I like him a lot. And then I like Chris Duarte, man, out of Oregon. Uh, he's your prototype NBA wing, just a 6'6 six, six bucket getter. He just knows how to score, he's a really good shooter. I just think he's one of those guys, like you plug him into an NBA game right now and he fits perfectly. He's going to be able to space the floor as a catch and shoot guy that can also get his own shot as well. The problem is he's older. Like I said, he's probably 23, 24 years old now, which is old for a rookie. But I think if you're a team, again, not all teams are in the same situations, right? Like there could be teams that need a guy that that comes in and produces right away. I think a guy like Chris Duarte is is the kind of guy you should look at. Or Davion Mitchell. But I, I I like those two guys, man. Those those would be the two other dudes that I look at as, as my fourth and fifth favorite players in the draft. I'll give you one more. I, I'll give you one more. This would be like a, oh, God, you look at mock drafts, he's maybe a late first. He's probably a second-round guy as Joe Wieskamp from Iowa. I watched him live four times last year, and I like him great shooter, great shooter. 46% from 3. He's much longer and taller and and uh and more athletic than you think he is. He's not a great he's not a great athlete, but he's not a stiff. I just think he I, I love it. He's smart. He knows how to run offense, you know, he, his cutting off the ball, the way he screens, the way he uses screens like he he knows he, he knows offense. And then the other thing is he knows who he is, which I think is really important for certain role guys. Like some guys have an identity crisis when they look in the mirror. They look at themselves like campaign. You saw with the Phoenix Suns, like dude looks in the mirror and he sees like Russell Westbrook. You know, he sees like, he, he sees like, I'm as good as Chris Paul. It's like, no, you're not, you're, you're not. Now, that's what's hard is you want guys to have confidence, but they need to be realistic with who the hell they are. And, like, I think Wieskamp's a dude you can plug into the pros. He knows who he is, right? He knows what he can do, and he knows what he cannot do, which matters when you're a role player. I do worry about his defense a little bit. Iowa played a ton of matchup zone, mainly to protect Garza. But, like, so he didn't get a ton of reps playing man-to-man. But just another guy to track. Second-round guy that I like is Joe Wieskamp. Second-round second dude that I like is Joe Wieskamp. So there you go. A little draft talk. How about that? hour for you, just talking conference expansion, Nebraska football st- off-season storylines, and a little little NBA draft. Again, be on the lookout. Be on the lookout for the next Husker Classic Recaps, baby. Nebraska-Florida State. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Click that subscribe button. It helps me out. helps you out. Uh, you can email me at Nick at nickbod.com. Appreciate all the support. Appreciate you guys tuning in, and we'll catch you next time.